Welcome to Intangible Quarter, the podcast dedicated to the love and study of Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Tonight, we have a very special guest, screenwriter, actor, performer. You know him from Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks, The Voice of Crow, Observer. I'm very lucky to have tonight Bill Corbett. Thank you. Hey, Wayne. Nice to be here. I greatly appreciate it. And for tonight's episode, you have chosen my favorite episode of all time, Five Characters in Search of an Exit. But before we get to that, I like to ask people, what is your first memories of the Twilight Zone, your first experiences? How old were you? What were your impressions then? I was really young, and um, I was fascinated by it, but it freaked me out because, you know, it had it had those classic uh, scary twists. And, you know, Rod had a penchant for bleak, language that I had never experienced before um, and, right. and situations that I'd never even thought of. So I was really fascinated by it, but, you know, I, I would, I would happily get freaked out by them. Um, when you say really young, are we talking 10 or five or uh, probably between there? I'd say probably seven or eight. Um, and they were, they were repeats even then. I mean, they were pretty old, but, um, they just kind of kept staying around in one form or another on right. TV for a while. So I kind of kept with it. At that age, you were growing up in New York, right? Yeah, in Brooklyn, right? New York. Right. And I grew up in New York, too, not in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But um, they were, I think for you, it sounds, and for me, I was exposed to them at the same age. And people think of them as like a marathon series or a late night spook out. But when I was that young, they were on during the day, right? I, I don't remember. Saw? It feels like they were all all at different times at different um, parts of my life. But I think they were, yeah, just like a syndicated, like everything else was, like on WPIX Channel 11 or <laughs> Channel That's 5, right. whatever that was. I feel like it was Channel 11 or Channel 9 yeah. uh, you know, in New York, right. And it was on constantly. So what <sighs> – do, do you have a memory of what the first one was that really stuck with you? I don't know if it's true, but I, th- I think the first one that really like blew out my young uh, brain cells was, I don't even remember the title of it now, but it's the one where they're wearing masks. It's, a, you know, and they take them off and they have all kinds well, of ugly. Bill, the, the title for that one is the masks i <laughs> i knew you would i knew you would do it but i remember that that like i couldn't sleep that night because i was like that combination of fascinated and enthralled and kind of appreciative but still kind of freaked out and um yeah. you know needing my binky <laughs> <laughs> you know ida ida lapino directed that one Oh that wow! Was very, very hip of Rod to one of the an early moment in uh, female directors. So um, either that is a great one that I didn't know till later in life. But let's turn to the episode you chose: five characters in search of an exit. And mm-hmm. I'll just give the stats. Uh, it is a Rod Serling script based on a short story by Marvin Peddle, which, by the way, I looked up. Not published. So Rod is the kind of guy who'd be like, oh, I like that idea. I'll pay you for the idea, even though it really isn't even a thing that exists. And he wrote the script, directed by Lamont Johnson, starring Susan Harrison, 
Murray Matheson, Kelton Garwood, Clark Allen, and William Wendon. And up. Oh, do you hear that sound? And you don't, because I put it in post, so we'll just play along. Do you hear that sound? That's the sound that says someone I just named is in another Twilight Zone episode. Uh, in this case, it's William Wyndham, the major, also played. Any guess where else you saw him in the Zone universe? Boy, I don't. I, I he was he was the only actor in that that I recognized uh, from. He was in he was all over television in the sixties and seventies, and he even all had his over. own series for a while. I, yeah, I think yeah. What it was, was it called? He was like a cartoonist. My world or something, and welcome right? to it. That's right. That's yeah. right. Which I've never seen, but uh, something I've heard of him was apparently pretty successful but uh he also as far as twilight zones he plays the psychiatrist in uh the hour-long episode the miniature which is the one where robert duvall plays a lonely man who's obsessed with this woman in a little glass house at the museum so uh that's the bit of trivia and now um briefly and by the way don't worry about spoilers. The show's been off the air for 60 years. Spoil <laughs> everything. But briefly, just in a couple of sentences, why don't you tell anyone who hasn't seen the show what this episode is about? Well, it's a um, it's it's sort of a, a, a mystery. All right. I'll just start with, with straight plot points. This, yep. this army um, major wakes up disheveled and – not knowing where he is. He's just sort of huddled in a corner. He doesn't know what's going on. He runs into a clown who he asks, mm-hmm. what What the hell is going on? I don't remember who I am or where I am or what's happened. And the clown basically uh, messes with his head a little bit but says, neither do I. Hey, hey. Um, right. let me introduce you to the others. And then there's three other uh, characters, a ballet dancer, a bagpipe player, and a hobo. Right. Um, and they don't know who or where they are either. And they're in a big cylinder-shaped room that's apparently metallic on the outside. They can see out of the top. It's an open top, but they don't know anything about their history or anything. And every now and then a loud bell chimes and kind of shakes up the whole works. So the whole right. episode is them speculating on who and what they are and what the fuck happened to them. <laughs> right. And give me the money shot. There's no spoilers. Go ahead. What do they ultimately find out? Oh, ultimately yeah. What they ultimately out? find out is that they, uh, when they fi- finally send the major over the top, he falls into a snow and then you cut away to a whole scene you haven't seen anything of before. It's the outside of a big barrel, like a Salvation Army type barrel where uh, a woman is ringing a bell, very Salvation Army-ish, to get dolls for charity. Um, and it turns out there are a bunch of dolls, Toy Story-like, come to life um, somehow. And the, some little girl picks up the major, who is now a doll, and throws him back in. And That's the very right. last shot, it's, uh, there, it's like plasticky versions of all five of them just lying in a heap. But there's a little moment where the ballet dancer's arm just sort of goes over to the major right. in doll form. And then you see a little twinkle of a tear in her eye. Right. So so five characters are trapped in the cylinder. They don't know who or why they're there. And we ultimately realize they're dolls in a Salvation Army donation bin. Uh-huh. Um, and first of all, 
Do you, do you think you saw this episode at that young age? Where you oh, were I definitely did. Yeah, so because did this was one of those that, uh, you know, <laughs> now that we, you know, now that you and I have been through decades of plot reversals and, you know, the mechanics of stuff like this and, you know, have and, and that Rod Serling's narration style and writing style is very portentous, has been parodied a lot. I mean, right. it, it feels weird to think that I was ever just blown away by that, but I absolutely was. Um, so, right. At whatever age, that 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 twist was like, oh my god, they're dolls. Right. So, but this is maybe this is this is not where I meant to start, but we can jump in right here because. Oh yeah, we're starting. But, but this is here's the thing. So yes, I saw it as a very early age. It wasn't the first one I saw, and I know it's not the first one because I have a distinct memory of my brother who's seven years older than I telling me once I had seen a Twilight Zone, there's this weird one where five people are trapped in a garbage can, but it turns out they're dolls. And so when I saw it, I was like, I saw it, I saw that episode. This was in the days um, before spoiler alerts. Right, right. But, but here's the thing. I am a firm believer that with regard to Twilight Zone, the spoiler alerts are Garbage. They're BS because any t episode of Twilight Zone that's worth watching more than one time, and they must be worth watching repeatedly if they're still on the air after 60 years, yeah. the, the big bang twist, even though that's what it's famous for, often doesn't matter. I mean, the biggest twist ending of a Twilight Zone to me is to serve man, right? Uh -huh. It's a cookbook. And you know what? I hate that episode. I mean, I love it, but I never watch it more than once because uh -huh. it's just about the twist. That's the whole episode. But this episode, I think, was my first exposure to existentialism. Yeah. This is an existentialistic play. Oh, yeah. And as you, you're probably aware, I mean, it is pointedly based on some existential classics. Uh, just in the, in the title alone, it's Six characters in search of a of an author, the Pirandello play, yes. and then uh, Sartre's No Exit. It's just sort of mashed those titles together to get this one. I uh, I had a I had a really good feeling, Bill, that you were going to say that, and I was really happy that you did. <laughs> but if you didn't, I put it on the bottom of my crib sheet for the episode on the off chance that Bill doesn't mention this. Oh get yeah, right well, in there. you know you can count I, on my pretension in a pinch. No, I well, you know, I know you've got the background, so, <laughs> so that's why I was so happy to have you as a guest for this episode and in general. But exactly right. Serling knows this is existentialism. He's just quoted two really famous existential works in the title alone. But what I found out when I started joining Twilight Zone groups is so many people hate this episode. They hate it. They go, so dumb. I didn't know what was going on. It turns out they're toys. <laughs> and to me, that's the least important part. Well, I think, yeah, I think it, it goes to what you just said. If you... If you really are invested in the twist as the most uh, important thing, um, then it it is like a little, oh, I guess so. You know, they're toys. Then you start asking the questions that you don't want to have to ask, like, uh, how do they move around? It's a, it's kind of the Toy Story stuff, but with a, right. with a piece of existentialist, uh, at least, you know, the one that one that aspires to that sort of, early to mid 20th century existentialist drama drama um you you you, you know 
if you don't get into that, there's the 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 the, the seriousness of it seems lost when yeah. you find out they're just toy, toys in the bottom of a bin. Because then, like I have to say, because I'm I'm sort of attuned to this kind of junk, I start to think, oh, what, they're collecting dolls in a barrel, like, and there's actually a line where the Salvation Army ish woman says, yeah, we don't have that many dolls. So yeah, it's like because you have a barrel open on the street and you you're counting on people to <laughs> casually have dolls on them to throw in there. It's, it's not like change it's from your pocket. It's fair change three cents. Do you have a doll? Well, uh, just a bagpiper doll. I know it's kind of weird. And you've never heard of that before. I have a quarter. I mean, no, dolls only. Do <laughs> you, you need food? No. no. Read the sign, jackass. But you know what I found out? I didn't know this. This was a Christmas episode, which I find hilarious. Oh, wow. Because – Yes, it's Christmassy because it's about Christmas toys, but the, the the plot point is maybe we're in hell. Oh, yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> maybe we're in a dungeon for the unloved. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, it is, you know, the Twilight Zone Christmas special where the characters are speculating on whether they're in hell or just in purgatory. Right. So so now let's let's but you we, we've gone there. We've all acknowledged that this is 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 existential. This is a a twenty six minute piece that somehow deals with what it means to be alive and why we're here and how long we're here for and where we came from and what is our identity. And it blows my mind that there are people who watch the episode and don't understand the philosophical importance of it because everything I just said are actual lines of dialogue these characters say. Yeah. Uh, and it obviously applies to all of humanity. So here's my question to you. If this is a symbolic play, if this is a metaphysical existential play, let's – I want to ask you what you think these – each characters represent archetypally. Hmm. So so you have the major uh, – to me, that's I, – I don't know if I just let you go or if you want to go a little back and forth. Yeah, let's to go me, back and forth because I'm I'm not always good at this like straight uh, allegory stuff. But I, well, and I, don't, I don't even know if that was in, intention consciously. Uh, it could well have been given that it's Rod Serling and he's not – you know, he's he, – he, his style was to trowel it on pretty thick at times. Yeah. Um, but – yeah, the major. I, I don't know if he represents this, but he's obviously the, the 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 man of action and somewhat denial. You know who? Bill, just, Bill, I have man of action written out in my. Well, there notes. you go. You are just the best, right? So he's the protagonist. He's the doer. Mm-hmm. He is the man of action when he's confronted with a bunch of apath- seemingly apathetic people at first. But it, but it's funny though because it's at, at every point that he does something save his last action basically another character says yeah we tried that already like That's for right. a long time and we gave up because nothing happened because right. of it and he right. will not be deterred it's just like i'm gonna do it anyway so so oh. to me let's go to the clown and i'll take this one to me the clown is not a clown and is not an artist but is the cynic he represents the cynic he says things like um you're wasting your time. You know that, don't you? 
which as a little boy, that cl- I was never one of those kids who was scared of clowns, and I've never been scared of clowns. This was the only clown that ever scared me. And I remember when he scared me. It was when he looks up with this little sheepish grin and says, you're wasting your time. You know that, don't you? Yeah. And then when they try to climb and they want to go on each other's shoulders, the clown says, we'd be exerting our – they go, we don't know. It might work. It might not work. And the clown goes, right. We'd be exerting ourselves for nothing. Yeah. So to me, you got the man of action and the clown. To me, I feel – I'm not confident in all of them, but I feel good about man of action. I feel good about clown as cynic. Are you on board with that yeah, one? Yeah, he's a cynic, but he's also um, – I, I just – I can't quote the actual lines, but he does say stuff along the lines of, well, the facts add up. And like he's almost like the logician of the group. Um, yeah, which he, is an odd a- role for a clown to play, but he's also an odd actor to play him. And I, this guy seemed vaguely familiar to me, and I did Google him, and he's kind of a very distinguished actor who had, uh, you know, he was always playing sort of upper crust rakish guys and stuff like right. that. And it was a weird, it was a weird uh, thing to cast him as because he's got well, the me- very upper. Upper crust, mid-Atlantic accent, and he's wearing like a flower pot on his head. I mean, it's- right, right, and he's not, and he's an Australian actor, by the way. Oh, is he like, really? So, so he's doing an accent, but also, let me ask you this because I had a disagreement with a friend. I've seen him in other things. He's not always the same way, so it's not like this is the way mm-hmm. he acts, and he's a one-note actor. Before I even knew what gay was, because I was seven, mm-hmm. don't you think he's playing him somewhat gay? Or yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's just his default, uh, you know, foppish guy thing. From right. the There's a fine days. line between foppish and stereotypically gay. Yes. Yeah, especially in 1960, 61, whatever this was. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, he, he, he kind of, they talk about showbiz, like the, the first thing that the major says something is like, where's your circus? And he's like, circus? Have a circus, you know, right? Like, he says, Oh, there must be a circus and there must be a war. That makes sense, but there is no circus and there is no war, yeah, right. So, okay, so let's let's. I uh, we um, I don't want to waste your time, and this is literally, as far as I'm concerned, the richest episode I know. So, I'm gonna just keep it moving. So, yeah. if he's the cynic, the hobo is the downtrodden, the common man, yeah. I mean, he's certain they certainly cast a, a sad sack guy, he's got, <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> And he, yeah, he does. He just seems like uh, a, a Dorothea Lang uh, photograph come to life. He's just exactly sad looking guy. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to call him except, yeah, pretty much the uh, proletariat. Yeah, yeah. The, okay, the, so now you got you get the dancer. You you go for the ballet dancer. Yeah, I think it, she's more than one thing. So you throw out anything. What do you I, think she I would might say represent? She's, she's the voice of. Um, some optimism um, in the face of despair because she does tend to go along with um, the the major's action and try to put a positive spin on them for for a bit. And she actually does come up with the idea that ultimately gets them out of there. He just sort of rubber stamps it. (laughs) She's kind of maternal. She's kind of a mother figure, I think. Even though they call her girl, I think she's somewhat yeah, it's nurturing. Really, yeah, it's like and, I, at one point the the major says, uh, "The b- bagpiper, clown, uh, hobo, and girl." 
girl. They call the girl she's wearing a ballet tutu. <laughs> they call her a girl. It's like, girl, why don't you dance for us? And he's like, I, the major doesn't want to see the girl dance. For yeah. <laughs> girl. Um, but I also think she maybe could you could you could argue she represents the artist much more than the clown does. She seems yeah. things of beauty, elegance, grace, mm-hmm. which which brings me to maybe the most inanswerable question in the Twilight Zone universe. What the fuck is the bagpiper? That was a very odd choice when you only have five characters. What? Yeah, especially Me- since at one point they say, why don't you dance for the major? I'll play something. He says it in a really bad <laughs> Scottish brogue. Yeah, and then he plays the bagpipes and she starts dancing around like, no, that doesn't go together. Yeah, and she starts – she doesn't even do ballet. She starts dancing yeah. like an Irish jig. Yeah. <laughs> so you're stumped too? You don't know what, what the bagpipes represent? very represents. bland. Outside of the fact that he occasionally uh, blows on that godforsaken thing, he's, right. he's extremely neutral. Um, hey, it's so weird the- because I've never seen a bagpiper doll in my friggin' life. no. Yeah, I mean, you think like it's a girl's home and they are, they're trying to get dolls for the little girls. I mean, that's the whole framework of it. And so far, they have a fucking hobo, a bagpipe player, a hideous clown and a an army major with a mustache. The, the little girls would run screaming from or like some of them are okay. It's like, Katie, you've got a ballerina. Oh, I love her. You've got a clown. Oh, okay. Here's a fucking bagpiper. What? What? Look, you have no parents. Take what you can get. Here's a, here's a hobo who looks like he has lice, you know. <laughs> Enjoy. I think now we're going to turn to the Twilight Zone quiz. And now, the Twilight Zone quiz. I'm going to try something new today and, and not give you a multiple choice question. Uh, if you stumble and that's too hard, I will then create multiple choices. The thing is, I'm afraid it's too hard without choices and too easy with choices. Uh, it's not it's essay sim- questions, is it? But, no, but but <laughs> – and by the way, when you were giving the uh, rundown of the plot, you were very Socratic. You, you were like a first-year law student. You were very, very good. Uh, um so, but since you told me that you were already Googling the actor who played the clown, maybe this isn't too bad. That, that actor's name is Murray Matheson, okay? And although he was never in another episode of The Twilight Zone, the original series, he did have a prominent role in another Twilight Zone project. Hmm. Do you know what I'm referring to? Um, Night Gallery? Well, uh, no, although Will Wendon, the guy who plays the major, was in a night gallery. Yeah. One of a few night galleries I don't hate and a one that actually won, <laughs> won an award. But uh, no, I'll give you choices. Uh, now do. it's going to be two. It's going to be um, was he in a Twilight Zone radio play? Was he in the 1980s Twilight Zone reboot? Or was he in the Twilight Zone movie with the four stories directed by Dante and Spielberg and uh, Landis? Uh, that's not too easy. <laughs> just okay. want to rest, rest well, assured. Did you see the tw- All right. Well, look, look. So 19, far, no one's the 1980 reboot. No, I am no. sorry. So now you join the very good company of Casper Kelly of Adult Swim, uh, Mara Quint, uh, behind your back at Twitter, uh, and, uh, and you – 
are, are now the uh, three people who have not gotten the quiz right. Only pretty bad lefty has gotten the quiz right. The answer is the Twilight Zone movie. Oh, he was wow. in Spielberg's Kick the Can. He's Mr. Agey. He's the only one who wants to stay young because he's so into sex and he wants to be like a young buccaneer again. If you, oh, if you clown. Saw so, which is why I said I know it was a choice for him to kind of play it in a foppish gay way because he's very hetero yeah. in, the, in the Twilight Zone movie. Okay. Oh, wow. What, yeah. what year was that, Wayne? The Twilight Zone movie? Yeah. I think it was 82. Okay. He must have been uh, sort of old then. Oh, he was old, but that was the, yeah. you know, kick the can. So they were all yeah. uh, old and, and not a uh, – I didn't really like that movie with the exception of Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd. And yeah, the, uh, yeah. It's really the best thing in the movie, I think. But, uh, okay, well, the quiz is over. And, uh, um, oh, you know what? I, I, so I got all off my normal script. Um, and that is, I didn't ask you what I usually ask right at the top of the episode. Why did you pick this one? What was, why did it made this one stand out for you? Why you wanted to choose it above others? Really? Um, there were like if I did a deep dive looking at the at the list of episodes, I could have picked a whole bunch of them. But you know, when you asked me to do it, there were maybe five that came to mind immediately, and I think right. two of them had already been claimed in your podcast. Um, but this was definitely one of them, and it was just like, what are the, what are the images that have embedded themselves? I mean, the other the other ones are kind of some of the famous ones too, and I don't know how relatively famous, for lack of a better word, this one is. Like, I'm a little iffy on that too. I always yeah. thought it was one of the most famous and the one of the most beloved until I until I started hanging around in Twilight Zone groups, and it's like people just hate it. I mean, it's a love or hate. It's definitely a love or hate episode. Yeah. But you said, you know what? It's funny what you said. You said the images. And I, I have revisited and been exposed to Twilight Zone as many different times in my life. And in different times in my life, it has meant different things to me. Mm-hmm. But, but since I saw the Twilight Zone at a young age like you – there were definitely images like no other thing in pop culture that I can even reference that stayed with me for my entire life. That, like on a visceral level, like that is what fear looks like. That is what confusion looks like. That is what anxiousness looks like. Visual images that are almost like remembered dreams. Yeah. Am I being yeah. too am I being too hyperbolic or do you know not to any at all i mean that that i i totally identify with that because i think yeah that's that's the strong stuff that stayed with me and it, it probably is a somewhat a product of the the tender age i saw them at but um it is also because even even give it like the one we're talking about right now five characters it's it's a pretty cheap production absolutely but they still but it still has the uh the foreboding and the, I don't know, there's just the image of being in a giant uh, barrel without knowing where you are is that really gets into your marrow. It got into mine anyway. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, the lighting on all the twilight zones is better than probably any lighting at the time to date a television and is better than most of the lighting that has happened since it's like little film noirs. They're just beautiful. And the other thing is there's a shot 
Once the major goes over the edge, there's a shot of the four remaining characters standing kind of stunned, awestruck, looking up. Uh-huh. And it is the most – it is like the whole template for Spielberg. It is the classic like character oh, wow. staring at shit yeah. that Spielberg does. And you know Spielberg was a huge Serling fan. In fact, uh, oh, what's the what's the deal with Spielberg? The first thing he ever – oh, the first thing Spielberg ever directed was an episode of Night Gallery. Is that right? He directed the one oh, with Joan Crawford as a blind woman who pays to get somebody else's eyes. She oh, makes yeah. Tom Bosley blind to take his eyes for three hours of sight. <laughs> uh, yeah. You took my eyes. I killed yeah. Tom Bosley. <laughs> I saw Ray Seed enough. I saw that, that home run at Wrigley Field. But uh, – that one freaked me out as a kid too, but I really I don't like the night gal- I don't like night gallery. I don't. I don't really it. remember night gallery that well, though I do remember getting. Uh, you know that was a little more horror, like pure horror, right? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. And Serling and had less to do with it, and he hated it. He called it Mannix in a graveyard. <laughs> but <laughs> that um, sounds actually pretty good now. <laughs> they would have been better doing that straight. So you know what? I have my set questions, but I just want to bounce way too heavy philosophical shit off of you and <laughs> get your input. So, so I've I love rewatching Twilight Zones, and I've seen this one more than any because it's my favorite episode. So bear with me if I'm going to too close a read, mm-hmm. but. You said that the ballerina cries at the end, right? And I had a polite disagreement with someone who was telling me that they're in a garbage can and she realizes they're toys and she's sad about it. And I said, no, not at all. Totally wrong. Because A, it's not a garbage can. And and B, you know, and it's important. <laughs> well, first of all, it's not a garbage can. No. But it's important because it's a very bleak episode, right? We're in hell. Life has no meaning. We don't know wh- how long we're here. We don't know why we're here. And then then Serling says, if, just when he's being really awful, he then says, this added hopeful note, perhaps they are unloved only for the moment. In the arms of children, there can be nothing but love. So for me, Serling pulls back from all this life is unknowable. Therefore, what's the point of doing anything? It's a pit of despair and says, love, love is the meaning. Love is the only thing that we can know for sure. And it's the only possible way out of this. Mm-hmm. You buy that? Or you think I'm, I'm going too heavy? No, I don't think you're going too heavy. I think it's actually pretty explicit. Um, right. And it, it really, uh, it made me wonder how much how much Rod Serling put that on at the end, just so it it wouldn't make people, th- you know, jump out their apartment windows. Because it it is a, it's a weird way to end it on some level because she's crying, um, and yet he's promising that these <laughs> like I'm trying to imagine that the 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 characters that we have gotten to know in that twenty something minutes there, these just sort of like. Um, existentially rocked adults suddenly being cradled in a child's arms and 
<laughs> like, what would they know? <laughs> That's what I'm like. Do they, would right. they suddenly realize they're dolls? Uh, I it guess it gets so. very heavy. It gets very heavy once you think of that, right? You can't really think of that. But, but to go, it's, it's when, my it's my curse to like think these things through and but, like. Uh, but here's the thing: you said, "Look, it's so explicit." He says it explicitly. But as I hang around in these Twilight Zone groups, it is shocking how often people flat out disregard things he says explicitly mm-hmm. you know so so and this is the thing that i love about twilight zone how can something so didactic so moralistic so ov- so often overt in its message like you just said have ambiguity that holds up to repeated viewings and i think it's because the message the moral the theme is often didactically stated but the facts surrounding it and the story and the people that play out usually have a lot of ambiguity. Yeah, I, I think that, I think I I felt that on my second viewing and I listened a little closer to what he said. It's like he's giving a, a kind of a hopeful note, but you just you basically just saw the tear coming out of the the eye of this woman who was alive and now seems dead. <laughs> Because she's now a doll, you know. So that's that's the visceral impact of it. Is like all these all these th- things that were just alive and trying to trying to at least break through to the other side are now almost inert. Outside right. of one little bit of effort of this uh, the girl who moves <laughs> moves her arm slightly and then t- cries, which so seems me- which seems terrifying. Mm-hmm. And that's how this guy on Twitter remembered it. But I have a whole other possible interpretation. I was already disagreeing with him, but I just watched it again last night to prep for the show. And I saw some, I thought of something I never thought of before because I was focusing uh, on the ballerina most of all, even though they call her the girl. She's actually in many ways the most important character, I think. And she says – hold on. I wrote down some things she says. She says, oh man, it's going to be so fun when I edit this part out and post. She says, oh, two things that are really interesting. She says, perhaps there were a lot of dungeons like this. Perhaps they're for the unloved. Perhaps that's who we are, the unloved. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the other thing she says is, none of us have felt anything since we've been here. Okay. Mm. So then... After he tries to climb the wall and gets thrown back, she cries. So uh-huh. she's felt something. So what does that mean? Was it her compassion for him? Was it seeing someone trying to make a difference in a world that, that stirred up feelings when she was dead? Was it a feeling of love? I think these are questions worth asking, especially well, you, Bill. <laughs> no, no, I think it could be any of the above. And I, 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 like, I think that's a really – cool and sort of sunny way of looking at it and the, and maybe it does make it dovetail with um rod's bookend there a little bit his closing thesis that you know maybe uh feelings and memory are coming back a little bit with with that little bit of movement and that little tear you see at the end she says um, none of us have felt anything, but it might not – like many things are said in this that can't be true. She says that, but she clearly has compassion for the major. When he's on near tears up against the wall, she goes, please, major, it'll be okay. You'll get used to it. You'll be okay. 
she doesn't seem like someone who doesn't feel anything. Well, I think it's 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 weird how they use the word feel because in in some ways they're just trying to say, look, you're not uh, you don't have human needs anymore because he says, does anybody bring you food or water? Right. And you know, and there's there, and she says explicitly him to him, major, do you feel hungry right now? Do you feel thirsty? Basically saying like you're, we don't have human needs anymore. We don't feel anything, but I don't know how big that is supposed to be or if it's just supposed to be like i don't feel pain or but, but then the clown, right but then the clown says wait wait, wait I, I know we don't get hungry or thirsty but we can still feel pain and right, then she that's her leg. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very not clear right yeah let me throw another in 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 clarity yeah that's a word let me throw an in clarity at you bill uh and you yeah um the clown says as you mentioned earlier Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, you're you're a major. There's a war. I'm a clown. There's a circus, but there is no circus, and there is no war. And then later he says, "I may wear the costume of a clown, but I can assure you, I have no recollection of ever being one." And yet, he's constantly doing flips and little dances and moves. He moves like a clown. Yeah, he's also uh, <laughs> he also kind of fucks with the major just like in little ways i noticed the second viewing like he's always poking him with his umbrella (laughs) (laughs) doing a version of like does does this bug you i'm not touching you (laughs) i mean so yeah somewhere in his somewhere in his dna there there's there's cloud stuff right and not for not for nothing um uh, I think, by all accounts, uh, Rod Serling apparently did have a sense of humor and liked a joke. Uh, I say that because the comedy episodes of Twilight Zone are some of the worst things I've ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. and they're not funny. The Buster Keaton one is, is uh, for me, like unwatchable. The Carol Burnett one is the worst thing I've ever seen in the Twilight Zone. I don't know if you've seen that. But, but there is a couple of jokes in the Twilight Zone that make me laugh, and the funniest line – I think in the history of the Twilight Zone is said by the clown. He's fucking with him, as you say, and he says, uh, "Your orders, uh, Colonel, General, whatever you are." And uh, the major says, "I'm a major." And the clown says, "Don't, don't fret. Advancement comes quickly, even in a peacetime army." Yeah, which is really funny. It's like a yeah. good, good dig. So he seems to be a clown, even though he thinks he's not. Because they, they even ask him. The major says, oh, acrobats, alley-oop, isn't that how it's done? And the clown says, I'll ask him when he comes in. As if, what would I know? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting because he – at the moment he's saying that, you've, you've been introduced to the clown for just seconds. And I didn't really notice what he was saying until the second viewing because the first time around – I hadn't seen it in years, and I was like, "Oh my god, that face!" That and the way he trips over the clown in the dark is really for anybody with uh, clownophobia. It's got to be a jarring moment. <laughs> it's much scarier than Pennywise, as far yes. as I'm concerned. Um, although I never really understand the clown thing. Everyone says, "Well, everyone's afraid of clowns," and I'm like, "Then why is McDonald's the most profitable business in the history of capitalism?" I never really understood the scared of clowns things. It can't be true for everyone. No, I, and I think it's it's taken on a life of its own too. I mean, I think if you're a, if you're younger than you, and certainly younger than me, like you you had a period in your life when there wasn't it wasn't dominated by Pennywise and company and movies lit, you know, with clowns with fangs. 
Yeah, I guess. I guess maybe it's a Pennywise thing. I don't know. Or maybe just no one's as, as masculine and as rugged as I am. I think that's always a possibility. Um, I'll probably cut that out of the post. doesn't really play. You know, here's something I noticed, though, on the rewatch this last time. It seems to me that time in the Salvation Army bin moves differently than time outside of the bin. Okay, because they say to him, like, oh, why are you trying? We've been here so long and for a long while we looked until we realized there was nothing. Well, first of all, really, how long could it be? Right. Like, how long has that been been out there? A day, two days? Really, how long could it be? The other thing is, we know when we go outside the bin, that Salvation Army lady is like ringing a bell. So she's ringing a bell like every like five seconds. Yeah. But inside the barrel, it only rings twice during 25 minutes. So the whole time differential is different between the inside world and the outside world. Yeah, I think that that's a viable theory. And again, this is 23 minutes long on CBS in 1961. And to me, that's why Rod Serling is I know he's lauded and I know people love him and everything, but in my opinion, in some ways is underrated because the Herculean amount of ambition to try to bring existentialism to the people on Christmas with yeah, right, differing right. time differentials is my God, what an achievement. <laughs> and I mean, like There's- to me, ten a million times more impressive than making the prime minister of England fuck a pig in black mirror in 2016. But, you know, not that I've got a problem with, with uh, Charlie Brooker. I like him. But I'm just saying yeah. it, it might not be as flashy, but in some ways it's far more audacious. Well, and and it doesn't – you know, ki- uh, time has not been kind to a lot of the style there. Um, and that's not necessarily the fault of Rod Serling or the, the material. Just that we have a much archer, ironic uh, approach to things now and we're suspicious of – of big, um, you know, big paragraphs full of sincere passion like that. Um, right. And I'm not saying it's appropriate for everything, but, you know, he was, he's, I don't know, I don't know if Serling, you may know this, did he serve in the World War II? Oh, he, he definitely did, yeah. It is a, because it is there's a, a whole post-war, I mean, actually most of the 20th century, but with with the two world wars, um, he, it, there were a lot of traumatized people and nations there. And, you know, it wasn't just Pirandello and Sartre, the Beckett and all those guys were really asking like, what the hell are we that we do this to each other? And, and I, and I think, you know, and that has to be understood with the momentum of that and the atomic bomb looms over so many of yes. Serling's works, you know, that, um, that, that it's just not the fashion anymore to to lay it out there like that but right God, like the audacity of it and the the balls of it and the kind of rawness of it is really cool once you can like you can adjust your ear to the time a little bit the there's no doubt that he's very much like Arthur Miller or Clifford Odets you know but for TV mm-hmm. uh you know that well-made play style um, and and w- learning more about his life and looking over his works, I mean, the specter of the post-traumatic stress from his time in World War II 
is is apparent in so many episodes, um, and not just the war episodes like Quality of Mercy or um, or the Purple Testament, which are both World War II stories. Really, in everything, there seems to be this uh, survivor's guilt in so much of Serling's work that why is he even alive? Why is he even here? Is this a dream? All the success and his life could be snatched away from him in a, in a moment. And um, when you when you look at that, I could probably point you to 20 episodes. Uh, yeah. If you haven't noticed, Bill, I don't really have much of a life, and all I've been doing lately for fun is theorizing about the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Look, but, no, that, that's a life. <laughs> but what I learned, what I learned from reading a great book by his daughter uh, Anne Serling, who is actually going to be on the podcast in the fall, she oh, wrote cool. a great book called "As I Knew Him." His his experiences in the war were severe. There was one oh, really? point where he was face to face with a Japanese soldier, like caught with his pants down, kind of like like dual high noon, twelve o'clock, oh, and God. he he froze. And a friend of his shot the soldier dead over his shoulder. The oh guy behind him shot the – so the soldier died in front of Serling with a shot coming from over his back, which was probably a good time for Serling to be like five foot five. Wow. Uh, probably came in handy. So things like – in another incident, his best friend in the army – I might have this wrong. He might have been the only other Jewish guy in the platoon – was killed in a freak accident where just like a crate of food like fell out of a plane and landed on him like two feet away from Serling just crushed him dear god yeah so when you find things like that it's uh it's it's in the it's in his stories so often and I I'd never seen his just before Twilight Zone he did oh I'm forgetting it he did a a, a drama for Desilu Playhouse uh-huh. Uh William Bendix? Yeah, William Bendix plays a guy who's dreaming that he's in Pearl Harbor before the bombs drop, but he's not. He's a guy from 1960, but uh-huh. he dreams he's there in Pearl Harbor every single night like a lucid dream, tries to warn people they don't believe him until ultimately he's pulled back and he does die in Pearl Harbor. Wow. It's like a story about a guy who like the war comes back and claims you even after you've gotten out of it. Um, so – yeah, I, I think I think the war played a huge role. I think you're right, and I think that does add a lot of um, a somber, very life and death stakes, hard on your sleeve tone to the mm. Twilight Zone universe. Well, I, I didn't know. Maybe if I if I knew it, I had forgotten it that he had that he was in the war. I think it's a good bet for anybody of his generation that they were, but I didn't know that he had such traumatic combat experiences that makes a lot of sense yeah and this might be a good time to announce that this is pretty much all of the episode if you're listening on soundcloud but um for those of you who are uh members of uh my patreon www.patreon.com w gladstone you get the segments of both the twilight zone game and the original piece of uh comedy i create at the end um but as I was saying before the audio problems, yeah, Rod Serling decided not to go to college at first. He uh, he joined the army for the sole purpose of wanting to kill Nazis and was bummed that he had to uh, fight Japanese soldiers. Uh, and the uh, – did you hear that part, Bill, before, before think, it cut yeah, out? I think, I think that is literally the last thing I heard. Yeah, and but here's what I think is really a testament to, to Rod Serling. Um, 
he's a guy who believed in World War II, and it's probably the easiest war to believe in as, a, as an American, the clearest and most defined and fighting for your own survival after being attacked and facing down genocide. So it's, you know, as far as wars go, mm-hmm. one of the better ones. Um, and he was confronted by Japanese soldiers, nearly killed by Japanese soldiers, witnessed the death of Japanese soldiers. And he comes back and he writes an episode like Quality of Mercy with Dean Stockwell. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Which is all about which which takes Dean Stockwell turns Japanese in the middle of the episode and is put on the other side of the conflict. And the point of the episode is that the American soldiers were no more warlike than the Japanese soldiers. There was there was there was pacifism and 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 jingoism and and compassion and cruelty on both sides in equal measure. And war is a terrible thing. And. I think that just speaks to Rod Serling as a as a human being to be able to say that coming out of those incredible post traumatic stress war conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I could be wrong, but I think based on the um, what kept coming up on Netflix after the five characters one, I think the quality of mercy was literally the next episode after that. Maybe, maybe. And then, of course, there's Death's Head's Death's Head Revisited about the concentration camp, which I never saw on TV. I never saw it till Netflix. And it blew – you ever see that one? It blew my doors off. I think I Is did it, once. A, not, a Nazi goes back to Dachau 20 years after the concentration camps to relive old times and is tormented and persecuted by the ghosts of all the Jews he murdered. Oh, my God. Yeah, it makes Life is Beautiful, which came out 30 years later, look like the, the cartoon that it was. <laughs> but um, but okay, we're going into our final segment. It is the Twilight Zone game. And now, time to Twilight Zone a movie. The way this game works is I give you a famous movie, describe it in one sentence, and then you try to resolve it if it occurred in the Twilight Zone universe. You do the same thing for me, and folks in the comments of the Patreon gets to, get to say uh, who won. Um, who would you like to go first? Like to give or receive, as they used to I say. I will receive so I, so I can uh, learn from your, your wild. Okay. So your movie that you are being tasked – I give you 30 seconds, which I make disappear in post – which you are being tasked to Twilight Zone, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a story of a really popular, well-liked kid whose life is apparently still too stressful, that he needs a day off from school, and he takes it with his girlfriend and very tightly wound friend. Now you have 30 seconds to take that premise and resolve it in the Twilight Zone universe. Okay, it turns out that Ferris is actually dying in dying as a soldier in Vietnam. <laughs> and he's actually Tim Robbins? And he's he's flash forwarding to a life that could have been. I know I know that the actual calendar doesn't work too well with this, but he becomes a high school student somehow. Um, and he's replaying He's replay his life is flashing before him and and multiple uh variations on that life are coming in fast and furious. And okay. time time is different. That is fine. Thank you for playing the Twilight Zone uh, game. It sir. was hilarious, wasn't it? He's done yes. in Vietnam. 
<laughs> this is the Jacob's Ladder matchup. By the way, a little bit of a tangent, but you've seen Jacob's Ladder, I guess? A lot like when it came out, yeah. Uh, I, I'm of the school that it's a terrible, terrible movie. Agree or disagree? I don't. I remember not being that impressed by it. I just didn't think there was – I think it like – it's okay to all be a dream if it's a significant dream where the symbolism holds up on a semi-one-to-one basis. But I thought it was such a free-for-all, it's all a dream that I was like, well, if there are no rules and you're just making shit up, couldn't have you made a better movie? <laughs> <laughs> if there were no rules in this universe, how about something fun to watch? Right. So, okay. Um, but of course, I sort of feel the same way about Usual Suspects, which is an even more controversial opinion. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm problematic, Bill. That's only one of the many bad things about me. Um, go ahead. I would like to hear what movie you have for me. Um, so my my movie is Die Hard. Oh. A police detective travels to Los Angeles to try to get back his ex-wife on Christmas Christmas for a Christmas party and uh, winds up fight, facing down terrorists. Oh, shit. That's a good one. All right. I think I might actually need the 30 seconds for that one. Okay. Okay. Here's the deal. Um, I, I don't know this is, if it's the classic Twilight Zone mold, but I think this is one of those Twilight Zones where you're like, huh, he went that way with it. All right. A thinker. Sounds good. Um, he goes there. He's got a troubled marriage. Uh-huh. He's confronted her office party is taken over by terrorists. He he does Herculean efforts to save the day. And at the end of the episode, she still doesn't go with him because the problem was not that he wasn't enough of a superhero. The problem why she was sick of his shit in the first place was that he always had to be the superhero and he still cared more about saving the day than dying with her. I like it. You know, I, you know, it's not, uh, that's a tough one. You know, it's really going to be hard on the voters on the Patreon who I know sweat this decision and take the responsibility very seriously. God bless them. So, uh, I'm going to, uh, I don't have the uh, segment yet, but as I mentioned, uh, after the episode's over, I do like a little, usually, convert the I don't know if you'll understand this concept bill it might be so foreign to you but I take source material existing in another form and then I use it to create comedy have you ever done anything that's outrageous like, I know it's it's, a, it's an idea that I myself came up with on my own with no uh, outside influences but in truth I've not seem right to me I've not done a riff tracks yet. Usually what I do is I incorporate real audio into like a skit that I, oh, cool. that I write. But uh, I don't know how I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of that. It'll be on my Patreon. But if I haven't said it enough, uh, huge fan of your work, huge fan of also your Twitter account, huge fan of you as a person. And thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Well, I greatly course, appreciate it. Was really, it was really fun. And now, Twilight Zone Fair Use Theater. dancer, bagpiper, and an army major. Okay, Rod, thanks for the descriptor. Actors, places, now before we shoot, any questions? So we're dolls? What's the motivation for a doll? Well, yes, you're dolls, but wait, here, let me try this again. 
Yes, you're dolls, but you all represent something. You're not just a ballerina, you're a mother figure, an artist. Right, Rod? Oh, he's out getting more smokes. So I'm not a hobo? You are, but you're more than that. You're the oppressed, the downtrodden. I'm still the hero, right? Well, yes, Bill, you're the protagonist, but hero? You try to be a man of action, but to what end? Whatever. I have the most lines. I'm the hero. And I'm a clown. Try to think of yourself as more of a cynic. But I have white paint all over my face. Yes, you wear the face of a clown, but what does that mean to society, really? That my nose squeaks? I mean, are you just making this stuff up? No! Each of you represents something symbolically. Each of you. Then what's the bagpiper represent? Um... Man's struggle to... Will you shut that up? Sorry. Well, we'll ask Rod when he comes back. Don't worry, you barely have any lines anyway.